Thanks for uh, joining today. For those of you that uh, have clicked on this because of the title that was offered, if you happen to have any of the issues that we are going to be covering, please make sure that you contact your primary care provider for discussions about uh, possible medical treatments that might be available to you. Please make sure that you are clicking that like and subscribe button, helping us out with the, the metrics within the algorithms. And so let's go ahead and let's get started with the discussion here about uh, prediabetes. A medical article was recently published by the Journal of American Medical Association that has become kind of a topic amongst some health and physiology educators that deserves a little bit of discussion time. As it relates to some of the previous podcasts and previous videos that have been published, along with a decade's worth of research that I've published. The title, What is Prediabetes? It's a commentary made by a editor from the Journal of American Medical Association, and there is some oversimplification of ideas that get presented within the one-page commentary presented, and there is a number of ideas and concepts that get brought up we start talking about prediabetes. So let's go ahead and let's review some of the topics and some of the concepts that have been previously covered, as well as expand upon some of the ideas that have been put out there within the article in the Journal of American Medical Association, as well as with some of the previous work that I have done related to the idea of metabolic issues. So let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So, so the first thing we have to do when we start looking at this issue is we have to get some definitions. And one of the key things that is not actually brought up in the commentary from from the Journal of American Medical Association is what actually is pre-diabetes. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation that is being raised as to what might come about because of pre-diabetes or because of a diagnosis of pre-diabetes. But what is it actually? And this is where we get kind of, if you did any type of internet searching, you can go down about 18 million different rabbit holes. But if you look at what is being produced by most of the health associations and health organizations, the Indication for when we go from being normal to having prediabetes to having diabetes is based off of two distinct blood measures. And the two distinct blood measures are what's referred to as hemoglobin A1C levels, also sometimes just discussed as A1C, and then fasting blood glucose levels. And the important thing here is that it's fasting blood glucose levels because glucose levels will change throughout the day based off of a whole host of factors. But when we start looking at morning time fasting blood glucose levels, there are distinct indications for when we might start having uh, glucose homeostasis issues, issues with blood glucose and blood glucose maintenance. The indication for a pre-diabetic diagnosis is a consistent fasting blood glucose levels above 100 to 125, but less than about 130, 140. And a impaired glucose tolerance test result, leading to measurements in the 140s to 190 range. And we and the numbers we're giving here are in milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood. 
And so you'll see this is an MG slash DL. There are other measures based off of where you're uh, getting the measurements done throughout the world. Sometimes we look at in terms of millimolar values, but for a good chunk of the measurements we're looking at in terms of milligram per deciliter in terms of a concentration. And that's for glucose levels. But the problem with glucose levels is that glucose levels will vary for a whole host of reasons. Even though we want to think about it in terms of being an insulin issue, it's not really an insulin issue because insulin regulation of glucose levels in the blood is strictly looking at one distinct type of uh, glucose transporter that would be a molecule in the cell membrane of three distinct tissues in the body, skeletal muscle, adipose tissue, and liver that are sensitive to increased levels of insulin that come about because of increased levels of glucose in the blood. Most of the glucose that we have in our blood actually goes into cells and into tissues independent of insulin. And so one of the issues that we look at, we start looking at, okay, what is prediabetes and what are the health implications that come about from a indication of being a quote-unquote prediabetic? A lot of physicians, a lot of the healthcare providers will focus on insulin and glucose, even though the culprit, if we want to think about in terms of a culprit, is not really insulin and it's not really glucose. And we'll get to that here in a, in a few minutes. So the glucose thing is more of an acute thing. It's more of a, of a at a single moment in time thing, even though we're going to measure it over multiple points in time. The bigger issue that we have to look at is the, is the A1C level. And what the A1C level is, is the indication for how much glycated hemoglobin you happen to have. And the amount of gly glycated hemoglobin you have is the indication of how much sugar, in particular glucose, has been in circulation in the blood for prolonged periods of time. When I have excessive amounts of glucose for long periods of time, one of the things that happens is we get chemical reactions taking place within the red blood cells, within the erythrocytes, that lead to glycation of the beta chains of the hemoglobin molecule. And so the hemoglobin molecule is a globular protein that's made up of four distinct chains. We call them alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2. And in each one of those chains, there's an iron molecule. And that iron molecule is the heme part of the hemoglobin. And that heme part is where we're going to be able to have oxygen bind onto the hemoglobin. When I have large amounts of glucose in circulation for long periods of time, what ends up happening is that that heme group will start having glucose stuck to it. And that's where we get what's referred to as glycated hemoglobin. And glycate, glycated hemoglobin has a different type of chemical function to it than regular hemoglobin. And it can lead to a whole host of other issues in terms of metabolic functions later on which we'll talk about in a different discussion when we start looking at what A1C actually means and how we can go about from having high levels of A1C to lower levels of A1C. But given that as a story for another day, what we're actually looking at, we're looking at this A1C is a percentage of the red blood cells, the erythrocytes, and the amount of hemoglobin by percentage that has this glycation to it, this glucose stuck to it. And under normal conditions, we want to have a value that is less than 5%. That means 5% of, of all of the hemoglobin has been glycated. 95% is not. 95% is normal. As I start moving towards a pre-diabetic condition, that 5% number starts to creep towards 6%. And so when we start saying, okay, what does pre-diabetes mean? Pre-diabetes 
based off of what the medical professional is going di to diagnose on is, is going to be based off of having that fasting, resting glucose level in the 1 to 120 range, the glucose tolerance levels in that 140 to 190 range, and that A1C test coming back in around that 6% range. When I get into those areas, I'm going to get a diagnosis from my medical provider of being, quote unquote, pre-diabetic. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be pre-diabetic? This is where we get conversations taking place. If we look at the prefix pre, that simply means to come before, to occur earlier than. And so if I get a diagnosis of pre-diabetes, it's the indication that I am going to develop diabetes. But that's not always the case. And this goes into what is the underlying root cause for the issues. And the underlying root cause for the issues is not what is being summarized within the Journal of American Medical Association's commentary. And so they list off these risk factors, such as being older than 45 years of age, being overweight or obese, which is a, a bad term, being physically active less than three times per week, and we'll get to what that physical activity issue is here in a second, eating an unhealthy diet, once again, bad term, having a parent or sibling with type 2 diabetes. This is a misnomer, even though there is a linkage in association and correlation between genes and the possibility of having metabolic issues. We'll get to the, that here in a, in a bit. For females having a history of gestational diabetes or giving birth to infants that are greater than nine pounds. And then they indicate having, for females, polycystic ovarian syndrome. All of these issues that are labeled out here is not due to pre-diabetic, is not a direct linkage to pre-diabetes. And that has to deal with the fact that when we start looking at all of the risk factors that are laid out, what we're really discussing here is we're discussing the continuum of fitness. And that's because we have a overly complex bit of physiology taking place. And the overly complex bit of physiology taking place comes about through interactions between various factors. And these are various factors that I have summarized as being fitness and fatness factors, where for people who might be going towards a pre-diabetic condition, they have an overexpression of the fatness issues. That doesn't necessarily mean that they look obese or look overweight, but the factors that are coming into play in terms of overall health puts them into an overfat as opposed to a fit issue. And so what's up happens we have a host of factors, a host of factors such as familial influences, which is where having the linkage between individuals and family having type 2 diabetes, environmental influences, once again, how we get that linkage within families, societal factors, which deals with a lot of the stigmatisms that come into play, both in terms of health providers listening to individuals who happen to have excessive fatness, 
and dealing with health issues independent of what their body morphology happens to be. We also have a whole host of hormonal influences and genetic influences. The hormonal and genetic influences are impacted by lifestyle choices, lifestyle choices that lead to increased or decreased levels of inflammation, which changes the way in which we physiologically behave. All of those factors link together to form our sociologically accepted and environmentally cued health behavioring. Health behavioring combined with societal factors, combined with physiological factors, develop into our, what our body morphology happens to be. All of those cogs put together leads to the overall health of the individual. It's the overall health that's going to, that's going to act along a continuum. And when we look at this, we have two distinct continuums that develop. The two distinct continuums that are going to develop are going to be continuums of fitness and continuums of fatness. And so when we start looking at our continuum of fatness, we go from our severely underfat to our severely overfat. And once again, we're not talking about what the person looks like. We're talking about the amount of fat that the person has. That level of fatness kind of overlays a level of fitness where we have our inactive leading to our sedentary, leading to our active, leading to our active fit, leading to our highly active fit. And what we see within these continuums is we see increasing risks of diseases based off of where we fit within the continuum of fatness, where as we head to, towards either one of the two extremes, either severely underfat or severely overfat, we have ever-increasing risks for disease. Whereas on the fitness continuum, that increased risk for disease occurs as we progress towards the inactive state. The more inactive I am, the more increased risk for disease I happen to have. Whereas the more active I am, the less risk for disease I happen to have. That continuum on the fitness issue occurs independent of my overall level of fatness, which is where a lot of healthcare providers and a lot of people who are discussing this on the internet get it wrong. And this is where we develop an overlapping continuum. The overlapping continuum is where we see at a balance point in between active and inactive individuals, a tipping point in between an increase and decrease risk for disease based off of the culmination of fitness and fatness factors. Where we have within our fitness and fatness factors, we have things like physical activity, such as weight training or resistance training and the type of weight training or resistance training that you do. Endurance training, which some people mistakenly refer to as cardio. The type of endurance training you do, the duration of endurance training you do, the frequency of endurance training that you do, and then your level of activity of daily living. How active are you independent of exercise? Your diet is going to impact your fitness and your fatness factors. And once again, it's not about selecting a specific type of fad diet. It's about looking at what is my macronutrient requirements what is my macronutrient intake? What are my micronutrient requirements? What are my micronutrient intake? What is my nutrient balance? Within that idea of nutrient balance, what is my meal frequency? What is my meal size? How am I dealing with both the physiological as well as the psychological regulation of eating? Which leads to a whole other discussion that we'll have later on. But the other thing that comes into play in terms of the fitness and fatness factors 
are my stress management techniques. Because one of the things that comes into play when we start looking at this issue of fitness and fatness and the impact that overfatness has is that overfatness is going to lead to chronic inflammation. And it's the chronic inflammation that we have to worry about. That is the key feature within the development of diabetic conditions that has to do with, with how sugar regulation occurs, how metabolic regulation occurs based off of the endocrine responses to inflammation. And one of the key things we have to be able to regulate is my stress management. Stress management will regulate my overall inflammatory responses, my overall level of inflammation, my overall response to inflammation. And when we look at this, we have distinct things that we can do within my stress managements that are both positive as well as negative. It's those positive things that will increase my fitness factors, such as finding a way to de-stress without doing things like smoking, without doing things like eating excessive amounts of sugary foods. Once again, it's not about the sugar, it's about what specific types of sugars do to our metabolism without consuming alcohol. Once again, it's not about consuming alcohol by itself, but the overconsumption of alcohol and what that overconsumption does to liver metabolism, which alters the ability for the liver to do other types of metabolism necessary to maintain normal metabolic homeostasis. And so within these fitness and fatness factors, what's happening is we get this development. And the development is based off of my fitness factors leading to my metabolic flexibility, my cardiorespiratory fitness, my musculoskeletal fitness, counterbalancing my fatness factors, my visceral amount of fat, my total amount of fat, my total amount of fat free mass, where based off of where I fit within that continuum, I'm going to establish my overall physiological health status. And this is where being more physically active leads to better overall health. But the problem is, is that people who are on the continuum for high amounts of fatness relative to fitness have something working against them. And that's where we have to look at the hormonal regulation of metabolism, hormonal regulation of homeostasis, in which we have what's referred to as upper regulatory elements. And the upper regulatory elements that we have to look at are things like exercise stimulus, nutrition, the psychological want to do things that are high in fitness factoring, all of which are modifiable factors. Whereas things like gender and age, gender being the sociological term, are fixed. We cannot change those factors. Based on my psychological adherence to what is being offered to me for an exercise stimulus, I will either want to or not want to do the exercises where coercion versus self-selection comes into play. If I'm being coerced into doing the exercise, I'm less likely to do that exercise. And this leads to psycholo this leads to a psychological aversion to the exercise stimulus. And it's not just exercise, but it'll be activity in general. And so I have reduction in physical activity. The reduction in physical activity is going to disrupt not just the exercise stimulus in terms of the hormonal responses, but will also disrupt my nutrient balances. Changes of exercise stimulus as well as changes in nutritional balances is going to impact my overall metabolism. 
it's going to change systemically what's going on within my body, what's taking place within my cardiovascular system, what's taking place within my musculoskeletal system, what's taking place within my nervous system, what's taking place within my endocrine system, so on and so forth. Those changes within the systems filter the way down through the organs and the tissues by changing receptors for hormone signals. The change in receptors for hormone signals changes the way in which the cells ultimately respond to the fitness and fatness factors that we have at play. As I start to skew towards the fatness side of the continuum, what ends up happening is I start having a reduction in hormones and a reduction in responses to hormones that would normally allow for tissues to grow, for cells to grow, for low levels of inflammation to take place, for proper metabolic regulation. This is where we usually will link this with thyroid hormone, but it's not really a thyroid hormone. It's actually other hormones come into play that actually regulate thyroid hormone and thyroid hormone action at the tissues. And these are things like leptin, ghrelin, adiponectin, GLP-1, as well as my stress hormones, sometimes referred to as my hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis hormones. And so when we talk about this scientifically, we talk about it as the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary, so the hypothalamus and the pituitary within your brain, and the adrenal gland sitting just on top of your kidney. And those three areas are highly involved with my stress responses, and it triggers a lot of inflammation to take place. What happens when I have this very low exercise stimulus, this nutrient imbalance, regardless of whether it's overconsumption or underconsumption, causing changes in metabolism of the tissues of the body, leading to overfatness within the fitness and fatness continuum, I get what's referred to as anabolic dysregulation. It's this anabolic dysregulation that is the issue that comes into play when we start looking at prediabetes. This is where I become metabolically inflexible. That means that I'm unable to utilize different types of fuels to meet the energy demands for the body. Cells that should be responsive to insulin become insensitive to insulin. They stop responding to insulin. Skeletal muscle, adipose tissue, fat cells, and the liver. And what this does is this leads to with high amounts of stress hormones triggering large amounts of glucose being released from stores leads to a high blood sugar level, say hyperglycemia. And that hyperglycemia causes the pancreas cells to start to produce even more insulin, causing what's referred to as hyperinsulinemia. And this is where we start getting into, okay, how can I actually diagnose the diabetic condition. And so the big cutoff between diabetic and pre-diabetic is that insulin issue. So we have two things that are going to come to play when we start looking at that cutoff point between diabetic and pre-diabetic. And the cutoff point happens to be, am I seeing elevated glucose and elevated insulin in a fasting state? But at the same time, this is where we start looking at what was referenced within the article as all these other things that come into play as to why we should be concerned about pre-diabetic diagnosing. The changes in insulin sensitivity also is going to be associated with changes in leptin production and leptin sensitivity. Leptin is a hormone that's coming away from the adipose cells, the fat cells. And we think about this in terms of a feeding regulatory hormone. However, it has other impacts throughout the body and it supercharges immune cell activity. It makes the immune cells become more active. 
it produces a lot more of the intraleukin hormones that come into play, hormones that are coming away from immune cells that trigger more inflammation. The inflammation plus high amounts of hormones coming from the fat cells changes the way in which blood vessels function, and it causes an increase in atherosclerotic issues, increases in atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries is sometimes how it's referred. But what it also does is it also changes the compliance of the arteries. It makes the arteries stiffer, less able to expand when blood is being pumped through them, which raises blood pressure. Raised blood pressure causes a cascade of events on the heart, which causes the heart to have to work harder, which leads to the cardiovascular disease that gets associated with the diabetic conditions. But at the same time, what it does is it also blocks signals that would normally cause for more blood vessels to be formed. And so it reduces the ability for blood to flow through areas that are highly metabolically active. When we're in this state, we're in a dysregulated state. That dysregulated state, which we'll talk about with the, which we talked about in can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes, and we'll address in a second part of the discussion here. That dysregulation, if we can correct it, we don't get into the diseased state. And this goes into some of the recommendations that were offered in the JAMA, in the Journal of American Medical Association's commentary. However, if I cannot correct that, what ends up happening is that the poor diet and poor exercise leading to the high amounts of inflammation, leading to the changes in adipose, in fat metabolism, and fat cell metabolism changing in the way in which the cardiovascular system is functioning, changing the way in which the pancreas is functioning, changing the way in which the musculoskeletal system is functioning, is going to lead to greater psychological aversion to exercise. It's going to lead to changes in food intake, which is going to lead to, in, in a cascade of events, the overfatness, which triggers the metabolic syndrome issues, which is going to be seen in what's usually referred to as the non-communicable diseases, the liver diseases, the kidney diseases, the nerve diseases, the cardiovascular diseases, the diabetic diseases that all come about from the continuum of fitness and fatness, where I am skewed to the fatness side away from the fitness side. And that's where we have to worry about. And that's where we have to figure out, okay, how can we somehow correct this. And this is where a lot of people will get into this argument about what's it mean to be pre in terms of a diagnosis. Because there's really a couple of things that we actually diagnose as being pre. Pre-diabetes is one of them. Pre-hypertension is another one. And a lot of people will come into, oh, well, they're only doing this because of the fact that I can get put onto some sort of pharmacological regimen for long periods of time. It becomes a big pharma logical fallacy. And the purpose of the medical diagnosing of prediabetes is because we know that the higher levels of A1C, the higher levels of fasting glucose, which is what the measurements on prediabetes is, is indicating, is it's indicating a prolonged state of chronic inflammation. And that prolonged state of chronic inflammation is causing the anabolic dysregulation to occur, which is going to trigger all of the non-communicable diseases, all the things that we want to try to prevent from happening. These are things that we used to only see in very older adults, which is why one of the list of things is individuals over the 45. We see, pri we see prediabetes in juveniles. We see prediabetes in adolescents. We see prediabetes in young adults. The cutoff of age is independent of most things. 
even though age is one of those factors that gets put into those upper regulatory elements that we listed out. And so the whole idea about prediabetes and what prediabetes is indicating and why we need to be worried about it is that prediabetes is indicating that out of all of the factors that are at play within that complex organization of issues that lead to my overall health, I have some cog that's not spinning correctly. And what it's doing is it's allowing me a chance to correct the cogs that I can correct so that I'm able to have some level of appropriate overall health within the continuum of overall health. And the way in which we get those corrected is based off of treatment options. And the problem with treatment options is that most of the treatment options that are provided have huge issues of bias within them. And it goes into the unhealthy diet. Well, what's an unhealthy diet supposed to mean? What's a healthy diet supposed to mean? Physically active at least three days per week. Well, how physically active am I supposed to be? What type of physical activity do I need? This is where the psychological adherence needs to come into play. What am I willing to do? What do I want to do? What can I do versus what, I, what am I being forced to do? When we start looking at treatments in part two here so that we're not going for hours on end within this podcast. If I'm being asked to do things that I don't want to do or am adverse to do, which means I'm only going to do it when I'm being coerced to do it. I'm not going to want to do it outside of the coercion, regardless of whether it's diet changes or fitness changes, fitness activity change. And this is where when we start looking at changes in preventive measures so we don't go from the dysregulated state to the disease state, the idea of, oh, if you lose 5 to 7% of body mass, you have a reduced chance of developing the disease state. It's not body mass. We see changes in health status independent of any changes in body mass based off of improvements in my fitness factors, which we'll talk about in part two of this discussion and something we've touched on in the how can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes, but we'll get more uh, into this based off of the indication of the prediabetes and what is listed within the Journal of American Medical Association's article. So thanks for joining part one of the discussion. Please stay tuned for part two. Make sure that you are giving us those five-star ratings. Make sure if you haven't already subscribed that you are subscribed and clicking on the alert button so you make sure you get the alerts for when we're putting out new materials. Please follow on all of the platforms that we are publishing on here on the podcast, as well as on YouTube, on Substack, as well as short clips on Instagram. If you like what we're putting out there and want to become a subscribed supporter of it, please do so through the Substack 